Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brand. In this episode, we're discussing SST 133, our first Negative Land LP. It's the Escape from Noise record. And Brant, we've got a special guest. Yeah, Mark Hosler's on the show. Yeah, it's just amazing to have Mark on. Um, it's one of those interviews. I mean, every interview we get is pretty darn awesome and pretty darn special. But this one in particular, I think it's it really stands out for me. Um, it's long, too, so we want to get to it quickly here. And, uh, Brent, we, we got to keep ourselves to just like a couple of nano spiels. Can we do that? I'll try. It could have been way longer, too. Like, I left so many questions that I didn't ask. Oh, man. Okay, well. We're going to have we're gonna have Mark on again, for sure. Yeah, we've got more negative land to come. This is a, a completely different type of record, too, than we're used to having on the show, too. So I'm interested to get into it with you. Um, who wants to go first? Nano Spiels, use first. You go. Okay, I have more, but I'm going to keep it to one. And it's a Nano Spiel, and it is uh, a new addition to the SS Tree brand. Okay. It's uh, a new record. I think it's pretty darn new, Um uh, it's by a band called Petrified Max, Brent. Have you heard of them? Just when you texted me about it earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, man. Come on, keep it keep it fresh for the show. Um, anyways, well, well you didn't only... give me, you didn't give me any details. And I didn't okay, I didn't well... Google it or anything, so I'm hearing this for the first time. Okay, good. Anyways, Petrified Max, new record out called Charlie Drove North. It's Vitas Matari and John Rosewall from The Last Brand. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and uh, Danny Frankel on drums. It's kind of a 60s garage psych post-punk type sounding record as described on their Bandcamp page. And it, it really is. It's a, it's a cool sounding record. They, um, I mean, we've had a few related ss tree limbs to petrified max in the last couple of years with new danny and the doorknobs new trotsky ice pick now we've got this petrified max lp out i checked it out today for the first time it's it's just as good as those other ones and i recommend you check it out that's it i'm done well we have time for another one hit me with one more because i've got i've got more than one no nope. and i can't nope. afford to have a backlog of spiels ryan i can't you can. I can. You go. Okay. Yep. I feel like, Ryan, I should have an effect on my voice here, like the comp zone for this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Because, Ryan, I have a PJD update. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Josh Hayden hit me to this one. PJD, of course, is Palisades Juvenile Delinquents. If you don't know, go back and listen to our Treacherous Jaywalkers episode. Okay. Yeah, man. Episode, episode 126. Check it out. Yeah. Okay. Mustard, a band we talked about in that episode, for sure. Right. They have an album up on Bandcamp that just went up. Mustardmusic.bandcamp.com. Uh, it's called Re-Mustard. It's a selection of remixed and remastered digitized recordings from the original cassette releases. Meet the Mustards, 1985. Probe, 1986. <laughs> and Moss Landing, 1989. And they say on their Bandcamp page, it's the first of three releases. 
One, oh, to come on Bandcamp? Yeah, one I think might be a new recording, actually. Originally recorded at PJ Studios Number 1, Steve's House, 1985 to 1989 by Steve Townsend. Steve is the drummer and vocalist along with Sean Wheatley, bass vocals, and Daryl Goldfarb, guitar, piano, cello, key holder to high school music room. That's what he's listed as. They cover a Magnolia Thunderpussy song called Windowpane, which is interesting, speaking of the SS tree. And here's the blurb from their band camp. Mustard was formed in Los Angeles in 1984 by three friends who began playing parties, releasing tapes of experimental four-track recordings and playing clubs in Hollywood with respected SST bands all while still in high school. They, they moved to attend UC Santa Cruz where they continue to record and play shows on campus. They currently live in different states but record remotely with new releases coming soon. Cool. I know you're you're obsessed with that PJD collective, hey? I am. I'm going to hit you with a couple more spiels, Ryan. I'll make them quick. Do it. Okay. Do it. Friend of the pod, Jeff Shrek, sent me a message to say he finally, after years of trying, scored the John E. Risk solo album. John E. Risk, of course, is the guitarist and vocalist of Angst. Yes. It's a 1997 solo album called Days Like These, on a label called Brave Noise out of the Netherlands. Assuming that that's self-released, there's nothing else on that label. So he sent me a copy of it. It's mostly acoustic-based, very, I would say, forlorn. Sounds like maybe a breakup record. There's a bit of a Lou Reed Velvets vibe to some of the tracks. Interesting listen, and I want to thanks Jeff. thank Jeff for sending that over. Difficult record to find, for sure. Yeah, I bet. Okay, Ryan, there's a new Divine Horseman single, Mystery Writers. It's out. It's killer. They have a new album coming later in 2020 called Hot Rise of an Ice Cream Phoenix. You can check out the the first single, Mystery Writers, on their Bandcamp page. Peter Andrus from the Snake Handler era lineup is on the recording. DJ Bonebreak on drums. Robin Jameson was scheduled to play bass on it, but he was tragically killed in the summer of 2018, which Chris talks about in our interview with him on episode 90. Uh, and a, but a friend of Peter's, Bobby per- Permanent, is filling in on bass, and of course Julie Christensen on, on vocals with Christy. And there's a killer live version of Mother's Worry from 1987, also up on their band, Bandcamp page. It's from a live album they're also planning to release. So keep your eye on on the Divine Horseman's website and Bandcamp page. Cool. That's it. Right on. I'm glad you kept it uh, pretty civilized there. Yeah. Let's get into some negative land, Ryan. History lesson, part one. All right. Like I mentioned, we've got uh, Mark on the show, and the interview is amazing. I got to tell you, Brant, like it's like really fascinating and also really inspiring, too. I don't know. Where do you want to start with Negative Land, though? Let's kick it over to Mark, and then I've got a little history lesson, too, with some of the stuff that uh, we don't cover in the interview. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Mark Hosler. Mark, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me here, or there, or wherever (laughs) it is we are. All right, so we're talking Negative Land today. Talk to me, if you can, about 
where you grew up, how you started Negative Land. I understand you were still in high school when when you started the the group. Yeah, uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, nerdy, geeky, odd guys growing up in the suburbs of Northern California. You know, we were there was kind of in the in the wake of uh, punk rock. There was all this independent music being released. There was all this post punk stuff coming out. Uh, we were all interested in electronic music, prog rock, fire sign theater, you know, just general weirdness um, and electronic music. And, and uh, there was a particular record store in Berkeley, California, that we would go to that was uh, it was very new at the time to, to have a, a record store that carried imported music. And so we were very, very fortunate to have access to all this incredible stuff that was being released in you know, 76, 77, 78, 79. Very, very inspirational. And uh, and yet there was something we wanted to hear that we couldn't find. We, we would hear different records. There were, there were little hints of it, glimpses of it, but uh, we just couldn't seem to find that record. And somehow or other, I don't know why or how, but it just occurred to us that we needed to make that record. <laughs> now, I think I read somewhere that your early influences were Throbbing Gristle, Per Ubu, The Residents, Mike Oldfield in particular, I read, had a strong influence on you personally? I wouldn't say, well, yeah, but I would phrase it differently. Um, it was more just what inspired me about people like that was just that they were following their own path. Right. And doing their own eccentric, iconoclastic thing. You know, Mike Oldfield was inspired. I mean, I have a soft spot for all that 70s prog rock stuff. You know, the mid 70s. Yes. Albums. I you know, all that. Uh, uh, I love all that stuff. Um, you know, Gentle Giant, etc. But besides the loving the, the album Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield, what was so impressive was that he made the whole thing by himself when he was 18 or 19 years old. So he was just a couple years older than me. Right. And so this was just sort of amazing. And you have to, depending upon whoever's listening to this right now, depending upon how old you are, you know, no one had recording studios at home in the 70s. You know, there was no way to independently release your music very easily. Uh, it, it was it was barely even an idea. Uh, besides the sonics of Throbbing Gristle being interesting and exciting to me, what they did, you know, just sonically, the fact that they were completely independent, they were their own record label, they were their own self-managed group, and got their their work out there, obviously completely uncompromised. That was very inspiring. Per Ubu, which I listen to now, and the early Ubu albums sound kind of like incredibly wonderful garage, crazy garage rock. But boy, when I was hearing it back then, it just sounded like it was you know rock music from Mars or something. Right. And the Alan Ravenstein, who was their synthesizer player, and he didn't play keyboards in any conventional sense. He just made noises that just dynamically went with the music. And those, you know, those first two albums right there is Modern Dance and Dub Housing. I, I still just think those are genius record albums and still enjoy them. So, you know, no, we didn't want to sound like any of that stuff, but uh, very, you know, real inspiring. And, you know, we got introduced to all the stuff, all the, the German kraut rock, you know, all that stuff, Noi and Cluster and Harmonia and Faust and uh, all that stuff. Again, super inspiring, you know, to hear it. Okay, when you say we... Was it Richard and David right off the bat, or was it Richard first yeah. and then David? No, it was actually the three of us. I actually had a job, an after-school job, uh, when I was, you know, I was seven, 16 and a half, 17. And uh, I had an after-school job 
where we'd call people up on the phone and ask them questions about new television shows. It was like this called Audience Studies Institute. I just recently found the actual questionnaire that I had to use for my job in the two or three weeks I lasted at the job. It lasted at that <laughs> job. It didn't last long. Um, <laughs> I've learned over the years that if I have a boss over me that I just fundamentally don't respect them, right. I'm really <laughs> terrible at pretending. I mean, I don't. I don't. I try to be really nice and be a good worker, but I've discovered I'm really shit at. <laughs> faking it you know if i just basically fundamentally think you're kind of dumb and this is idiotic and i don't respect you you know right. so yeah that was unfortunately came that became apparent in my later teenage years and early in my 20s but um yeah so richard and david worked at that job and and i you know i've told the story before but the reason we met is that i had a i had a list of uh, a piece of paper with a list of records on it i was wanting to buy for my next you know if you're a obsessive music collector you always have your wish list of what you want next right right Again, this is before internet where you can just hear anything you want anytime anywhere but this back you know you were back then you were having to be very selective save your money um some, of, so, some of us still have a list like that only they're on our phones now <laughs> okay all right i don't know but it's just i don't think it's not as exciting the detective you know the hunt for music and and how hard it was to find it and and uh I really wonder what it would all mean to me now if I was growing up with how in an era where technology, you know, makes it so accessible. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But yeah, I had a this I had a piece of paper that had listed a bunch of different records on it including a record by a German space music artist Klaus Schulze. It was an album called Picture Music. Richard walked past me, he saw the piece of paper. I didn't know him. He just happened to lean over and he said, "Oh, Klaus Schulze, Picture Music. I have that record." <laughs> and you, back then, you know, this was sort of a, this was very eye-popping, you know, like, oh my God, what? Like, oh my God, you know, you're <laughs> kidding. You know, how do you know who that is? Because nobody I know knows this. You know, you can't even buy these records. There's a one record store in the Bay Area. We can even buy this stuff, right. you know? So it was just, I was instantly intrigued. And then I think the same day, he introduced me to a, a, another gentleman who had a very unusual way of speaking, David Wills. And I remember for a Split second, I wondered whether he was putting me on or something. I, I didn't know what was going on, but I, I, I quickly realized, nope, that's actually how this guy really is. And um, imagine, uh, imagine getting those phone calls from him with the telemarketing questionnaire. <laughs> oh, it'd be great. Well, you know, David, David's job for many, many, many years was he was a cable TV installer and repair guy. You know, he would repair like that the people's you know Playboy channel reception, right. and so. He actually did occasionally do service calls for people who owned our records. <laughs> it happened a couple of times. And they you would know? say, "You're the voice. You're the we know Wait, that voice." Yeah. I think. In fact, I think one time, you know, he said, "Ah, oh, I just did a service call of someone who had the poster from a Big Ten A place, you know, on their wall." <laughs> you know, and I didn't know what to say, you know. <laughs> okay, so the three of you. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we bonded. You know, it's a very typical you know teenagers bonding over love shared love of, of strange music so i had already been starting to do some recording in my bedroom and it turned out they also did home recordings and david knew how to make tape loops where you you know take a razor blade and a reel of a part piece of a reel to reel tape and you cut it and you tape it one end to the other and make a loop and play it on a tape deck right and he knew how to make echo now these were all very very exotic amazing magical things to me 
And even then, David had something called the booper, which is a inc- absolutely astonishing noise-making device, which is all built on f- principles of feedback, modulating feedback in different ways. But it makes all these alien electronic insect noises that are quite funny. Right. And we still use that to that to this day. I mean, that that that's that instrument is is, is part of uh, what Negative Land does. Uh, over the years, we've there's been more built. I think there's about we have about ten of them now. I think, uh, <laughs> but they're all quite different. Yeah. So all of this stuff is just, you know, you're, you're growing up in this pretty banal suburban culture. You know, you're getting the shit kicked out of you by, by kids at school, you know, uh, uh, and you retreat to your own little secret world, you know? And in this case, it was, for me, it had been making animated monster movies. And then I got into movie soundtracks and, and uh, that led me into, you know, uh, uh, learning about what is it what did i got to uh, soundtrack to sorcerer by tangerine dream right. that was a big inspiration to me i didn't even i didn't know what a synthesizer was <laughs> i thought a stratocaster was some strange instrument that made this particular phasey whooshy echoey sound because i didn't understand about uh effects boxes and pe- you know pedals how you put one thing into another and another to make process the sound it was all very mysterious so yeah, that all kind of led me down the path to discovering that record story I mentioned, which was called Rather Rip Records, and then meeting Richard and David. And they also turned out, I don't know if they knew about that store or not. But um, yeah, so we just started hanging out and they were doing recording. I was doing it. So we just started you know, collaborating and sharing gear and going over to each other's houses. And uh, one thing, you know, that just kind of grew and grew. And then there was a Richard took a cassette of what we've been working on. Uh, he played it for a guy who owned a little record store in the suburbs in Walnut Creek, California, next to Concord, California. There was a store called, I believe, The Record Exchange. This fellow named Bill Burkhardt heard it, and he said, that's really interesting. You know, you ever thought of making a record out of that? And we said, well, we kind of, I don't know, it's come up, but we, how do you do that? I don't know, we, we don't know. How do you turn a tape recording into a piece of plastic waffle, you know? <laughs> Right. And it's just, again, utterly opaque. There's no book to get. There's no source of information to understand how in the world this happens. But he knew. And he said, oh, no, you take it to what's called a mastering uh, studio, and they cut, you know, they actually take a, a piece of plastic called a lacquer, and they cut it with a needle, you know, and he and then you, you ship that off to a record plant, and they, they coat it with metal, and they make a plate, and there's a thing called a stamper, and they put a blob of vinyl in. You know, all, he knew how all that was done, and he he knew who to send us to 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 do that. Right. And so again, just was just like you've just been given this magical information of how to make a record album, <laughs> because we had no idea how you printed up a record jacket. That we could not figure out, and so. We did figure out where you could buy blank white album jackets. And so in my high school art class for the entire semester, senior year of my semester, I just made handmade record covers. Oh, wow. Using the jackets and I glued on pieces of black butcher paper I cut in 12-inch squares. I took photos out of old home improvement magazines that were in the classroom. There was wallpaper sample books in the classroom, you know, just for art supplies. And so I was gluing that on the back and... Uh, in kind of, and it was just out of necessity, but we ended up making 500 uh, copies of a record, and every single cover was different. And wow. inadvertently, we had made something that drew attention to itself because every single record cover was different. Right. And 
we took it to the, the, I think by then there were two record stores we knew of that we could even, we could consign it to in the whole Bay Area. And we took it there and, you know, they, we, we, we had a very, very, very modest uh, idea of success. We thought, well, maybe if we sell a few hundred in the next five years, we'll be very happy through these two record stores. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because, as I said earlier, there was this explosion of energy and, 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 and creativity and, and, and entrepreneurship around in the wake of punk and post-punk, there was starting to be all this, you know, this whole growing, distri distri overlapping distribution networks all over the world, different companies. And so one of those, one of those newer uh, record distribution companies was based, it turned out in Berkeley, we didn't, we didn't know about them, they were called Systematic, uh -huh. and they went to the record store, rather at Records, saw our record, and asked for our phone number, and, you know, and they called me up on the phone, or Rich, Richard or I, I can't remember which, but they, they called us up on the phone, and they said, oh, you know, we're really interested in your record. We, we'd like 100 copies. And this, to us, was, you know, utterly mind-blowing. 100? You've got to, like, that's insane. And we took them 100 copies over to this warehouse, which was filled with all kinds of records they were, you know, imported records they were selling, and all kinds of, and that was, that too was exciting and actually thrilling. And some point around there, I'm sure, you know, the first Black Flag singles were coming out, and I was vaguely aware of them by then. And I think two weeks later, they called and they said, well, they're, they're all gone. We want another couple hundred copies. And to me, this was like someone saying, you just sold a million records <laughs> because, you're, because our goals were so modest. Right. And I think that's an important factor in our longevity is that we, we always had this very, very small idea of what you know success for us has always meant doing what we do with with our with with integrity and, and, and no compromising and and reaching people it doesn't matter if it's a small number of people right as long as we feel good about the work i feel like the work will then speak for itself and the audience will slowly grow over time but there's you know no hurry and we're not we're not measuring our success against ideas of success that you get from you know, the, from media and popular culture, which I think are very damaging and discouraging. And I've done workshops and lectures with teenagers, you know, and I, and I always say you have to totally, you've got to realize that your ideas of success in our culture are completely constructed. They're, they're just bullshit. And you have to, you really do have to unpack that and come up with your own definition of what it means to succeed in whatever you're doing in life as a, a person in your work, creativity, your job, whatever. But anyway, they said, we want 200 more, you know, my jaw dropped in my lap and, and I, and I just said, well, I don't understand where did you sell the 100, where are the 100 <laughs> records? You only had them a couple of weeks. Right. And they said, well, we sell to other record stores and distributors all over. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, we sold them like where? And they said, oh, well, they, we, they're gone. We sold them to Los Angeles, New York, uh, Berlin, Amsterdam, uh, London, Tokyo, you know, and I was just completely freaking out, you know, <laughs> with excitement. And of course, I just, I think I said, did you sell them to Rough Trade Records in London? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> sure. Oh my God! Because that was like Mecca. That's the pinnacle. Of, of amazing. And Rough Trade was a great role model too, because that record label was not, I didn't like everything they put out, but it was so eclectic, right. you know? If you know their early stuff, you know, Dr. Mix and the Remix and Cabaret Voltaire and the Raincoats and 
and I don't know, Scritti Politi, and yeah, it was so diverse, and that also, that was always very, very inspirational to me, personally. So, you know, it went from us feeling like we'd triumph to even make, do anything in this, growing up in this, in the culture we grew up in, and, and being very happy if we could go to our grave with having made one record album. Right. And, and now I'm talking to you, that record came out 40 years ago, this May. Wow. And I, we're still doing this, this weird shit that we do, so... So you put out the self-titled album. You you yes. do another one, Points, in 1981. When does Ian come into the picture? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Ian heard the first record album we made, and it was basically, it's what he had been wanting to hear. It's like we were making the music he wanted some, to hear someone making, and he actually was very proactively tracked us down. Probably wasn't that hard, but he... he he tracked us down and got our phone number, and he wanted to meet all of us. Right. Um, and come out. And um, and, and where we, was he? He was living in, I think he was living in Oakland. Okay. And so he came out to the suburbs, and there is a recording that we have that it is the first time he ever visits us. He recorded the entire day that we're hanging out. Oh, wow. <laughs> and there was, a, there was a recording. He had a little reel-to-reel portable tape recorder that he put on a very, very slow speed. And there is a recording. I don't know if it would ever be interesting for people to hear, but it's like six hours long. And it, it's called, a, you know, A Day Within Negative Land. And it's Ian's first visit with us where we're hanging out. I think we go get pizza. We go walk around the train tracks and talk. And, uh, yeah, very amazing little time capsule. Okay. So we, at this point... Richard, David, and I are all living together in the same house. We've all pulled our gear together to have a better recording setup. And so Ian's on the periphery of this. And as Points is being made, um, what, we have three tracks that we want to put on the record, but they just none of them seem to be quite there. And Ian says, you know, I've been doing more experimenting with cutting up tape, as a, like, like cutting up, splicing up tape but as a way to compose music. Can I take these three tracks and I want to? Can I take them home and can I cut them up and just you you know chop them all into pieces and rearrange them? Right. And I said yes. And he came back with something, and that's a track on that album. It's the beginning of side two. It's called Babak the Bopk. And the reason it's called that is pretty dumb. It's simply the, there were three pieces A, B, and C, and all those letters are just showing you the way the piece was structured. <laughs> that's it. Okay. Not very, not very clever. But, but he did that, and I think he we continued to work with it. Once he'd done that, he did kind of a first pass, and then we worked on it some more. But basically, this technique that you could then take the sound that we were manipulating already, but then further cut up your recordings and manipulate, you know, you kind of compost your make your own stuff to compost that into more new stuff, yeah. and. This was, for me personally, was a super mind blower. I, and I remember just thinking, we need to explore this technique and make a whole record album that dives into this. And that became a Big Ten A place. And that took three and a half years to make. And, and that record, I mean, a huge inspiration that came from Ian. And for those of you listening, the thing is, some of the people I'm mentioning here, Richard, who's one of the founders, Don Joyce, I mentioned, and Ian, are all dead now. Yeah. And they, they died from various uh, health problems in the last, like, five, six years. So that's been a, you know, huge, huge loss and thing to go through because they're also, you know, my dearest friends. But Ian, Ian, one of the things that Ian brought to the table 
among many, was that he, re he really, you know, he said, look, if you guys are going to keep making records, you've got to push this, you, you've got to push this further. And he was saying, what about trying to make it a, a concept album? And, I, and me being a huge fan of, of prog rock concept albums, <laughs> you know, do you know, it's a little more obscure, but do you know the first solo album by John Anderson of Yes, it's called Elias of Sunhill? I do know it, oh. yeah. Oh my God, that record. I love that record to this day, but the packaging, right? The way it yeah. opens up, yeah. the inner sleeve, the label, everything about that record is really, really, the graphics, the liner notes, the music, the art, it's all integrated into a thing. And that was a huge, it, you would never in a million years guess that that record was a giant influence on a big 10-8 place, but it is. <laughs> I have a Hawkwind record that opens into a suit of armor. Also, Ooh. oh, awesome! Yeah. I don't know that. I, yeah. Which record? Hawkwind album. Uh, it's Warriors on the Edge of Time, the version I have, okay. anyways. Yeah. Yeah, and then I loved, you know, high concept and fire sign theater albums, and I just loved experiencing works of art and film and music where you just wanted to dig into it over and over and over because there was layers and layers to it, you know. Right. And I think that's what we started really digging down into doing with the Big Ten Eight Place, and that came out in 1983. Okay, and, and what it, is the concept? It's, it's it sounds like a treasure hunt or something. Yeah, well, basically, you're it's pretty abstracted because we were going very disappearing very far up our own butts making that record. Right. That's for sure. But that record is, you know, if you listen to the opening theme, the theme, you know, a big theme from a Big Ten A Place, the stupid song that David is the vocalist of, you know, it's, 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 you're arriving in Concord on a bar train. And that's the opening sound you hear after that song is you hear the sound of the bar train doors opening and you hear a voice saying, Concord, we're in Concord. All passengers, please disembark. And so you're exploring, you're exploring, it's our own sort of cracked universe par bizarro version of the the suburban world we were grew up that we grew up in okay and then side two of it is this journey you take literally a journey you take narrated by david wills uh you know the the uh the whole uh ten eight place story right yeah so and and i would also say that by that point we experienced so much snobbery and elitism in the in the san francisco kind of punk and artsy uh, post-punk music world, I would say that another factor that drove us in the direction we went in with that record was that we wanted to make something about this place that everyone was deriding. You know, everyone just said, it's the, stups, it's the suburbs, we hate them. Everyone, all these people who lived in San Francisco and part of these different underground music scenes were actually all kids from the suburbs who'd moved there to escape it, but they were too embarrassed to, <laughs> to tell you where they were really from, right? Right. And so we you guys really were celebrating still, it. <laughs> we were because yeah. we still didn't, we didn't dress the part. We didn't fit into that any of those scenes. Even though I, there was a lot of music going on that was interesting to me. By that point, there was what was I hearing that interested me? Things like indoor life, Pink Section, the, of course, the residents, Tuxedo Moon. Uh, you know, that was all local stuff that was really great, actually. Right. But um, but yes, there was a lot of snobbery and elitism, and unfortunately, in the punk scene, of which I would say the spirit and ethic and energy was extremely inspiring, but there was a lot of, there was way too much testosterone. You know, it was it was kind of just too too macho and violent for you know for for us. Yeah, a lot of meatheadedness, and and a lot of and unfortunately, a, a fairly strong 
thread of anti-intellectualism in it, I think. I can't speak about later, but, but this is like late 70s, early 80s. So that those parts were a turnoff. But the do-it-yourselfness part and the idea that you don't have to be a, a professional or trained and the idea of of making culture that is kind of a stick up the you know the ass of, of people or a, or a, a stick in the ear or something, <laughs> right. um, you know that all was in, you know inspired us and, and you know years later when we did the U two single, I always felt like to me I always felt like that was a very punk record that we did right. in terms of spirit of it and and I always thought that the spirit of it was equally as important as the sound of it, and that within years I think it all it turned more into the sound of it was what what it was. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned Dawn. Explain that. Do... I don't know. Sorry, I'm not for sure if I'm answering all your questions. I'm going off on tangents. No, which I no, it's great. Do, it's which great. I will do as we talk. <laughs> it's great. You mentioned Dawn. Tell me about Dawn and how he came into the picture. Sure. Well, that's neat. You're asking these questions. I figured we were going to completely talk about Escape from Noise, and that was it. But <laughs> um, So Ian has been listening to this guy on uh, doing radio shows that are, that he's a huge fan of, and he does these thematically linked uh, radio shows. Where he, and, but he also is making these uh, uh, broadcast scripted things that are kind of Firestein Theater inspired in a way, um, where he's doing a lot of voices with other people and, and sound effects and music, and um, and he just Ian says Ian basically, you know very beautifully and incredibly he just says you guys all got to meet this is it's important you all have to know about each other because some you, something should happen with this with, you know with you guys and so in 80 so i'm backing up now because i was talking about a record in 83 so in 81 probably what may of 81 so that would be exactly a year after the first record comes out and i don't think points was even out yet we end up meeting with Don at some, I think, some uh, burger place and in Berkeley. And he's a lot older than the rest of us. You know, he's like seven, 17 years older than I than I than me. Mm -hmm. But Don is very interested in what we're doing. We all are real interested in what he's doing, you know, with radio. And basically this idea emerges in our conversation that, you know, you guys should just come up to the station, bring your gear and just let's just start doing something on the air with all of your stuff. And we say, sure. And as, and as Don has told, you know, would later tell the story, it's the first time in his life that, you know, we just get in there and immediately we start turning records backwards and mixing things together and layering stuff because it's a radio station. So you have all these sound sources as well as our own mixer. We brought in our own keyboards and noisemakers and things, but you've got the station at cart machines, cassette decks, reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape recorders, three turntables. So you could, you could just, start to layer stuff and we didn't know this at the time but for him this was a mind blower for him because he'd never thought to turn three records backwards all at the same time and just see what it sounds like you know the whole, the uh, whole studio as an instrument concept exactly yep. studio as an instrument and we just i kind of instinctively uh that's just what we did from the moment we walked in there and don was so You're like kids what, in a candy and, store i'm sure you know, absolutely <laughs> i mean it's just it's just and we're on the thing is that the thing to realize is kpfa is not a little tiny independent station it's fifty nine thousand watts so it's reaching a third of the state of california so it's a very loud megaphone you right. know and, and, and what what time of day would the show have been on 
Originally, it was on 2 a.m. to 7 a.m. Whoa, so it's long. You ask about it because just today, we just announced that we've just just posted to the Internet Archive 150 episodes of Over the Edge that is from this era I'm talking about. Oh, wow. Yeah. We actually have thousands of hours of Over the Edge we've posted, but the early 80s era was, we thought, lost because we never used to record entire shows because why would you? You know, you couldn't afford the tape. Who would ever hear them? Who could have imagined one day there'd be a way to put for up for free, you know, 4,000 hours of radio broadcasts, right? Wow. <laughs> well, there, now, of course, there is. And, and, and we worked with the Internet Archive. And, yeah, before Don died in 2015, we put up as much as we had at the time of Over the Edge, the radio show. So would you, but, would you improvise for a while and then, like, stop and do something different, like play some records? Or was this... Like no. what, what was the concept of it? How did it all improvise? It's all we all it was all improvised all the time. But we had things sometimes. I mean, it evolved. It's noise, sound, music, scripted characters. And we and the, really the key magic ingredient was that we could put phone callers on the air and we would let them do anything they wanted. And they could make noise and sounds, and but they could interact with us. We could play voices at them. We might have a weird conversation by how we play tapes. We might loop their voice and play them back themselves. We could put two callers on at once, one in one ear, one in the other. Uh, We could affect and process them. And very quickly, this whole alternate universe of characters and a a whole – the Universal Media Netweb, Crosley Bendix and and C. Elliott Friday – the idea sort of evolved that, that the, the radio show was actually taking place in the future. Earth has been destroyed, and all that's left of mankind is living inside of a gigantic orbiting cube, and, uh, and, the, and the technology and media in the future allows everyone to sort of jam with each other with old Earth media, and, we're, and everyone's nostalgic for old Earth media, so they're kind of – you're just sort of hearing whatever it is they're doing with this stuff, and this is the universal media netweb. Uh, sounds like a blast (laughs) yeah and it was and it was just again unbelievably thrilling like sticking your finger in a light socket and you can and and this is a sandbox where you get to just do anything you want no one's gonna you know no one can stop you and uh richard started doing his pastor dick character and dick vaughn and uh david would come in and do electron demonstrations of, of sounds and you know i don't know cover a microphone and saran wrap and put it in a glass of water and then do things with that. And, you know, just all kinds of things happened. We, we pretended the show was canceled and we did all kinds of, there's all kinds of hoaxes and pranks and things we did in the air over the years. Um, so very inspiring. And so, uh, that started in, I think the first ep- the first time we did it, I believe was in June or it was either June or July of 1981. And there actually are some recordings of those first couple of episodes There's some fragments of it. Mm-hmm. that are on the Internet Archive, if you look up Over the Edge. Okay. But as I said, there's now hun- literally hundreds and hundreds of shows up there, and there will be more. We have about another 400 that we've rescued from the, from what we, the, you know, the, from the darkness, where we thought they were lost. Right. Basically, what it turns out is that all the shows in that era that we weren't recording them, we ended up discovering that there was a few people listening who were recording them at home and saved the tapes. Wow. That's how we have them. And so uh, Tim Maloney is kind of a satellite, you know, member, part of the, I don't know, part of the Negative Land family, very much so. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, he has been digitizing all this stuff from cassette over the last, it's taken him a couple of years, actually, oh. to finish. It's incredibly time-consuming, but la- a labor of love. So we just got to, you know, just debut this uh, just today. 
that we have all these new shows and it's oh, stuff wow. i mean it's it, it must have been ma- uh, amazing yeah. for you to hear all that especially oh, considering you've, you've lost some of your friends I, over yeah, the stuff that i forgot about and yeah. and again we we just were um you know we were having an enormous amount of of fun uh doing what we were what we were doing so yeah so don basically the thing with Negative Land is I can't say we've ever had anyone really join the group or leave the group. It's just that people gradually, just organically, get more and more and more involved in whatever way they want to be. And at some point, it's kind of like, well, I guess you're kind of a member of the group. And <laughs> since in 1989, we stopped saying who was in Negative Land, right. the, it, what, one of the unintended consequences of that was that it meant that we're not really, def- it doesn't, we're not defining to the public what your role is. So we're not even defining it to ourselves. You know, so there's people involved with the group doing graphic design and animation, all kinds of stuff. And I really consider them to be, you know, definitely part of the extended collective. But when they're working on a project, they're just as much a part of the group as anybody. I was going to say, know? it's almost an art collective, like Guar or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, Dan Lynch, Sean Wolf over the years, uh, uh, Sean Tejirachi worked on some things. For, you know, it, it's very, it's always very, very respectfully collaborative when we're, when we're working with uh, people. And then some of us are more involved with the day-to-day nuts and bolts of all the bullshit that it takes to run this and have a record label, run mail order and all that stuff. Right. You know, you know so, and, and heard, you know. That's one of my jobs over the years, definitely, is, is a cat herder. Right. Well, every group needs one of those. <laughs> yes. Drives me insane, but... <laughs> okay. So, we're getting close to Escape from Noise. Uh, when does <laughs> when does Chris Grigg come on board? Oh, Chris Grigg is involved uh, from the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And not so much... He's not so much on the early records, but he's part of the live shows from the very beginning. And uh, but, but he's part of Over the Edge... Yeah, he's part of everything. And then eventually what happens leading up to uh, Escape from Noise is that Don, Chris, and I all move in together. And we pool our our gear. And Chris ends up getting an eight-track reel-to-reel tape recorder. That's a giant leap because we were only working with four tracks. And because we've really honed our skills of sound and noise manipulation through tape splicing, making a Big Ten a place, the next step is, well, let's take these skills we're developing of manipulating found sound and make something that's more conventionally musical, that is a more, has a somewhat more pop quality to it in our own weird, fucked up way. Right. And, and that becomes Escape from Noise. And that takes four years to make. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a, there's a gap there. So. Oh, yeah. We're working the whole time on these things. They're just incredibly slow to make. We're incredibly critical of what we do, and we're not, we don't care about producing work on some, you know, treadmill of, you got to get a new album out, boys, every year so you can tour, you know, or whatever. Plus, um, you're doing Over the Edge, I'm sure, that whole time, which yeah. would have kept you pretty, oh, <laughs> pretty yeah. busy. Oh, yeah, it's busy, too. Yeah. But then Over the Edge, we begin to realize, is a laboratory for us to try out ideas that then turn into tracks on record albums. Right. Or it's a laboratory for stuff that turns into live performances. And, and they all start to in, influence each other. And, and part of what's happened with the, you know, in, in uh, October of 2019, we put out the album True False. And we have a new record in the works that's coming out, we hope, this year. We, it was supposed to be out by now. Uh-huh. But because, you know, uh, uh, 
COVID-19. It's not. Right. But the next album we have is actually the sequel to True Falls. It's called The World Will Decide. And it is, both these albums are just filled with stuff from those days, the early over the edge days, because all those things, all the bits and pieces that went into making each episode got saved. Right. So the, the raw chunks of sound and found voices, they all got saved in boxes and they're all labeled. And so when uh, Don, Rich, you know, Don, well, Ian died, then Don died, then Richard died, we started going through all the old stuff because there were so many golden nuggets in there that needed to be heard. And, and I'm talking about just, you know, a phrase, a, a word, right. just little, little noises, little, but all just incredible stuff. And they were all things that came from the, they were the things that were of interest to each of those individual people. So each of us has a diff, everyone in Negative Land is kind of a different something about what we're drawn to. And then the, the way we all combine it is, becomes the, you know, the stew uh, that makes up what we are. And so though Don was no longer with us, you know, in, in the living, you know, in the flesh, we could just stick him into every track, right. you know, tons. Of, I mean, there's hundreds of bits of him are all over true false and all over the world with the side hundreds and hundreds of bits and then all kinds of chunks of stuff of richards and stuff of the ends and so it really felt like you know and i i've I've explained this before but it really has felt like they're with us as we make these records you know they're there yeah so that's been of course bittersweet but very meaningful because i think all those different voices and personalities and brains are what makes negative land Make, to me, what makes us what we are, and it gives it the complexity that makes us, you know, in, hopefully of interest, you know, to people. Yeah. So that was, yeah, real important that we had all that, we had all that stuff. And a, and a, another, a shout out to Taylor Jessen, who spent a, a year digitizing all of Don's old uh, uh, tape archives for us okay. to use to make new records. It's a very takes a village type thing to do what we no do. No kidding, That's yeah. Important. Okay, so at what point... Do you get hooked up with SST? How do you get hooked up with SST? And when do you know that Escape from Noise is going to come out through SST? Yeah. Okay. Well, again, we're doing deep dives here, right? So this is, <laughs> I yeah, there's a story, but, and I don't think I've ever, I don't know if I've ever quite, I've ever explained this before in, in this, with this level of detail. So let's go back to that record store, Rather Rip Records, right? Yep. And let's go back to when Over the Edge is on at 2 a.m. to 7 a.m. There's a guy who works at Rather It Records who we become friendly with. His name is Ray Farrell. Yep. And uh, he inter- he's definitely the person who introduced me personally to, you know, Noy, Cluster, you know, all the, Klaus Schulze, <laughs> for yep. sure. All that, all that stuff. And um, Ray ends up getting a radio show on the same station we're on, KPFA. He gets a really great time slot, midnight to 3 a.m. on Thursday nights. And in fact, he asks me to make his, his uh, theme music for his show, which was called Assassinating Rhythm. And I made a very noy-ish sounding track for him that actually used the name of his show in the track. And uh, that was the theme for his show. Anyway, we're doing Over the Edge, we're, you know, which, as I've said, is thrilling, expiring, and amazing to do. But it is also brutal because it's on. you're up from 7 a.m. You have to get there. You know, you leave your house about midnight, you set up and you by the time you're home in bed, it's, you know, nine in the morning. 
Don's the only one who really lives the schedule. Like he he would literally just sleep during the day so that when he did the shows, he was always you know bright eyed, bushy tailed, etc. <laughs> right. We were you know we were not. So Ray ends up getting a job working for the SSC Records in Los Angeles, and he just he's going to move to L.A. and he I find out about this. And the thing is, KPFA is a place where if, if you leave your time slot, there's going to be a giant power struggle over who gets it next, you know? Right. A lot of weird power struggle, power, backbiting, and I don't know. I, it's just a lot of nonsense that we didn't want to ever get involved in. So I find out that Ray's going to leave. And we know that the music director of KPFA, who's also an avant-garde composer himself, his name is Charles Armacanian, we know that he really likes what we're doing on the radio. That it because he appreciates that we're doing what, as you described it, using the the studio as an instrument. So he's very supportive. And I go to Ray and I just say, Ray, I want to talk to Charles. You know, and could you not announce that you're leaving your show because there'll be this shark feeding fest over it? You know, <laughs> I want to go to Charles and I just see can we just quietly move over the edge to your slot? You know, just just do it. Right. And it's not it's not kosher but let's just see if we can do it and ray says sure of course and uh and charles armacanian says oh yeah sure we can do that that's so that's what happens is we end up doing you'll see it in we just in, in the shows we posted we do a show in 1985 that's called it's called the last ever over the edge and the whole show is us saying we've been canceled we're leaving the air we're never coming back it's totally depressing this is just horrible and then at a couple minutes to seven, you know, and when the show's about to go off the air for the very last time, we get a, we get a message saying, oh, my God, you know, we've been granted a new show in a new time slot. We're moving to Thursdays <laughs> at midnight. And that's how we made the move. I just found these old pictures of Ray in Rather Rib Records I took because in my high school class, I was learning to do silkscreen and I silkscreened him a Noi T-shirt with, the, you know, the word Noi with an exclamation point right, on yeah. it. Yeah. And there's, I have a picture of him opening him up and looking at it. And, yeah, it's very cute. So Ray ends up at SST Records. After we've put out three records ourselves and learned a lot about how you, you know, get a record made and manufactured and distributed, we've also learned that we really hate doing it. It's just awful. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't really want to be on a label, but what if there was a record label that actually did really respect the artist's integrity and left them alone and let them do what they wanted and that you could trust them, you know, trust their, their ethics, their, their honesty, their integrity, that they would pay you on time, you know, that there'd be no, you know, that they'd be good. And by that point, SST Records really had this reputation. It was kind of like SST wasn't just a record label. It was like a mission, like, you know, we're, you know, creating this alternative oppositional culture. You know, that is that is somehow in it is in opposition to all this other top down corporate shit that's coming down. And there was really a just in general, independently released music coming out back then felt like it was part of something bigger than just it wasn't just cool records and music. It really felt like there's something going on here that matters that, you know, does that yeah. ring a bell? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. We've heard it from many artists on the label. You yeah, it yeah. really, really does. And so you really felt like. You know, you just kind of believed in the mission. And so I kind of had wondered about SST. Now, what SST did musically and aesthetically, we didn't fit in at all. But I, I, my sense of where they were at ethically and kind of ideologically, and I thought, you know, as long as they leave us alone, that would be great. And 
And so we have a friend now working for them. And so I went to contacted Ray and I said, we have this record we're working on. It also happens to be more accessible than anything we've ever done. That's not because we're trying to be more popular. It's just the direction the work is going. It's just interesting to us to, to try our avant-garde techniques on something that's more in four, four time. Right. Yeah. So I give Ray a cassette and it probably goes into some shoebox for Greg Ginn to listen to, and he doesn't get around to listening to it for, I don't know, a year. <laughs> so, <laughs> And it was we, done? The record was done? It was almost done. There yeah. was a, We ended up adding a track or two, like I think Over the Hiccups was a very, very last addition to it. The record, in fact, just didn't quite hang together right. I have old notes of all the different track orders we were trying. We spent six months trying to work out the right order of the tracks, and it just wasn't working. And then when we added in the Over the Hiccups, which is the little girl, I was a preschool teacher at the time. So it was okay. one of my students trying to sing Over the Rainbow with a very bad case of the hiccups. And it's a very adorable, <laughs> cute recording. It is, and yeah. added that in, suddenly all the other tracks fell into place when we added that into the mix. I don't know why. <laughs> so, okay. yeah. So, so at some point, we don't know, we don't know, is it going to happen, maybe not, and every so often we're in touch with Ray, and like, oh yeah, he'll get to it eventually, and I, I think, you know, he might be interested, I can't promise you anything, and then finally, probably uh, sometime in 86, you know, we get it, I think we just heard from Ray, and he just said, yeah, Greg wants to do it, he'll do it. Okay, so let's talk about the tracks. You have, I, I read somewhere you had a conceptual guest list that you thought fit the album. Yeah. Hey, you've done some research. I'm impressed. Good job. <laughs> it's quite the guest list. Well, yes. And I think it would have made its point even more if we'd gotten some of the other people we invited. Um, I do have a wonderful rejection postcard from John Cage. And I was very thrilled to get a postcard signed by John Cage saying, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> it's actually almost cooler than him doing it, you know. Right. Um, yeah, and we invited Holger Chukai from Cannes, and we were trying to get all these noise people, you know. We right. were trying to figure out some way to get to stock Karlheinz Stockhausen, we never figured that out. So it was somehow, because the album's called Escape from Noise, the idea was that the guest list was sort of a, a, a who's who of people who were known for making noise. But it kind of morphed, and it also sort of morphed into a the idea of a, of, of a, of a, ba a band desperately trying to get attention by putting on some guest list on their record of, of to you know like as part of a marketing ploy and we were kind of playing with that trope as well right okay so let's talk but, about some of them henry yeah. kaiser who we've yes. actually talked about you and him before because you are on his uh on his album devil in the drain yes i worked on that that was a i was very uh, thrilled to get to be part of that project actually yeah yeah. I did live. I live engineered him playing guitar and doing the boy voice and the devil voice all all in real all in real time. <laughs> right. And I engineered it, and then my job was to take three or four takes that he did and splice them into one composed piece. Okay, so the track he plays on here actually is a good opportunity for for me to ask you this question. It's called "Quiet, Please." I'm curious about how much something like that is built of samples and how much of the backing track is played by the members oh, okay gee you're asking fun questions well now remember that so at this point the samplers exist they're brand new and they're very expensive right sampling's my word I, 
I'm I'm not sure if you were actually using samples. I just mean like found sounds. I suppose. Sure. No, I know, but it's just I no, I understand that the term samples kind of came into common usage because there was something called a sampler, but then it kind of took on a life of its own. Right. But it initially, technically, a sample would be played on a sampling keyboard, and and the you know the the big ones were Fairlight had made something that was like a hundred thousand dollars, and then Emu had made something that was, I don't know, ten thousand or something. So obviously, we can't afford this. Right. So there's only a this, a sampler is only used on in uh, this track, Quiet Please, but it's not the main rhythm of the track. That rolling rolling rhythmical thing that goes through the whole track and that's what henry's playing guitar to that is from a nina hagen album okay uh, i think it's called new york new york and i'm forgetting i think it's the last track on side two I, that's if my memory is correct but i can't remember the name of the track right now it's it's i believe it's uh it's just a tape it's, it's a tape loop that we cut and i believe it's sped up okay and and we then dubbed it to a four track and on the other tracks we stuck cartoon sound effects so the sound effects were in the loop in sync with the loop and this again was a very you know nowadays you can do all this incredibly easily you know with your sequencer and your you know your laptop it's nothing <laughs> but to take found cartoon sound effects and have them rhythmically synced to a, a tape loop which we stole from another record was very challenging to do and very exciting when it came together. I was going to say, your way sounds way more fun. Yeah, well, it's certainly challenging. <laughs> it's like you're trying to, I don't know, build a yeah, building from scratch. Yeah. The, yeah, the different guitar parts come in there. I think some of them were recorded at, at a half speed and then played back sped up. Uh, Henry came over to our studio and just improvised to the rhythm um, and tried to build up some different interesting things. But after, in that piece later on, you hear these faster rhythms come in that are being played on top of the main rhythm. And you can tell that those are varying a lot. And those are hand played by Rand Weatherwax. And he's actually playing that on an emu that he owned, a, 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 an emu synthesizer that he brought over to the studio okay. for that day. Yeah. <laughs> The track Michael Jackson has Fred Frith and Steve Fisk. Now, are they coming to you to do this, or are you sending tapes off in the mail? Well, it's all different. Yeah, there's no one way that it works. Um, uh, in you know, it, in Henry came over to our studio. I think Steve made something for us on an Optagon. Uh, Fred made something for us with a. I think a, is it a viola? What is it? I've got uh, the record. Yep, a violin and then drums violin. he's listed as. Yeah, as well. hats and he's banging on something. Right. And uh, so we ended up getting that from him. And being a um, you know huge fan of Henry Cow, being a huge fan of, of uh, his his early guitar solos albums, you know, those were really groundbreaking kind of avant-garde, you know, tabletop guitar stuff. Right. And then he was doing the Art Bears, you know, incredible, incredible work. So that was very exciting to have him contribute. For Steve sure. Fisk was part of Pell and was someone who was doing, who also did tape loops and live music to tape loops with found voices mixed in. And he did a, he he was working on, I don't know if it was out by then, over was it Over and Through the Night, was on, which was on K Records, fantastic record. You can find that out there or even on YouTube. Steve ended up on that. And then the, the Michael Jackson, it's a religious preacher, is it Elizabeth Clare Prophet? 
I, I'm forgetting. There, there's even a uh, there's a website that actually people figure out who who samplers sam who you sample from, right, and people right, yeah. people listed it. It it's um she's list she's casting out kind of demons you know in some way in the music industry, and as part of it, <laughs> she just listed off all of these different uh, music stars, and we <laughs> including Cindy Looper. Cindy Looper, yeah, we really like Cindy Looper a lot. And then when I was working at the preschool, the preschool was located in the back rooms of a church, and I ended up once sneaking into the church library, and I stole uh, some flexi-discs that were in there. And the flexi-disc had a recording of, um, uh, the, the, it, had the, it had the little boy or girl saying, Michael Jackson, look what you've done. Right. And that was on there. Um, I should, by the way, just to, just to back up a little bit about the Quiet Please track, where we sample that rhythm track is sampled from Nina Hagen. In the '90s, Don ended up saying, "Mark, saying, Mark, you need to hear this." He had bought. Don was a big fan of Nina Hagen, and and there's a Nina Hagen record album where she samples from our track, sampling from her. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. And I was really, <laughs> really thrilled by that. No that kidding. was just FYI. So. And then, and then Michael Jackson, look what you've done. Years later, that was sampled by um, Living Be uh, Fat Boy Slim. Yeah, okay. Living Better Chemistry in, in a track he called Michael Jackson. Okay. And uh, that led to some other really... He basically ended up paying $1,000 to SST Records for the rights to sample us. And at that point, SST had, been, had long ago stopped paying us any of the money they owed us because it, you know, all of the criminal behavior had emerged. And so he paid a thousand dollars to basically to Greg Ginn for a sample that he didn't. He had no rights to sell to them because we never cleared anything. <laughs> and then, of course, we never saw any of that money because Greg just keeps all the money from from the records he sells of the artists on his label. So it was, and I we ended up at that time in an interview in Spin Magazine, and I and we actually said, you know, that that this is really 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 absurd. And and on, and what's happened is that Fatboy Slim had sold the track where he sampled our track of the sample that we had no right to sell to him because we never cleared it. His version of it was used in a in a Coke commercial. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we actually put out a press release about it because we thought, here's an example of how totally absurd this can get with appropriation and, and, and also the way inner workings of how the inner music industry just rips people off. No too. kidding. Yeah. So, sorry, that's a digression, but that was another... Um, we, we actually, in the interview, I believe we got interviewed about it in Spin, and we said we thought it was sort of stupid of, of Fatboy Slim to have done this. He could have just taken it, right? We wouldn't have cared. Right, right, right yeah. And then we heard from Fatboy Slim's management wanting us to retract the story, and I think it's because they were freaking out that if word got back to Coca-Cola that they just paid him thousands and thousands of dollars for a track that he didn't actually have properly cleared, that, he, that, that that was going to be a problem. But they said that his feelings were hurt because we called him stupid. <laughs> well, and, I'm, and I, I'm guessing that has more to do with like the the hip hop community having so many issues with sampling. I'm, yeah, I'm I don't know. But my my response was we didn't call him stupid. I don't think he's stupid, but what he did was stupid. You know, I'm sure he's a very nice man. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> anyway, sorry, that's yep. another digression. But all these. You know, th this album, of course, to this day is is the best selling one we've ever done, and so there's right. lots of there are lots of weird stories connected to it. That's no, for that's sure. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I better hold up. Luckily, I have a copy of it in front of me. You forgot to tell me to do that. 
Yeah, so... Um, well, I like to test people. Oh, good. The See title track, Escape from Noise. Is that, yeah, one yeah. Of, is that one of the members of the band doing the vocals? Or the group? That is. That's actually... Yes, that's actually me. Okay. And the part where you hear someone yelling through a megaphone, that's actually, we took the studio recording, put it on a cassette, went out to the warehouse district in, the, in Berkeley, played it from the cassette into a megaphone, got down at the end of the block to record the sound of the voice being screamed out in a megaphone, uh, echoing out amongst buildings, and then re-recorded that, and then took that back to the studio, laid it back into the track. Okay. And I believe the rhythm track is an Oberheim drum machine that Ian, a friend of Ian's, had at Ian's job. And I basically snuck it out of the building for one afternoon so no one would know I had it because I had no permission to do this. And I didn't really understand how to program it. So everything I wrote into the drum part, no matter what I did, I could never erase it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the drum part, I came, came up with just from, you know, Brought it back to our studio, literally like went in the morning, got it, brought it back to the studio, tried to write something on it, barely understood the technology, recorded it, and then took it back to Ian's work and put it back to where it, had, it was so that the person who owned it never knew we took it. <laughs> All right. And, and then that was a tape loop, which was then fed into a Korg MS-20 synthesizer, and the simply the amplitude of the, the drum pattern triggered the synthesizer and that became the the sort of the weird a it's it's weirdly syncopated in there the 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 bass line for that so that's yes so that's how that's how that happened the lyrics were based around a an article in the newspaper that was all about noise pollution and actually no some of the lyrics are just word for word taken out of out of this uh article about noise pollution uh yeah and of course the whole album there was just this loose idea of we're making our pop album we're getting away from noise it's about noise we're escaping noise we're signing ourselves to this what to us was a really big record label we're trying to kind of make that be part of the project and the record itself was designed to look like it was a promotional copy of the actual record not the it was supposed to look like it wasn't the record it was the promo copy of the record gotcha i'm not sure all these ideas came through to people but that's that's sort of the whole idea and that's why there's all those track listings at the top that are duplicated with a box next to them the, the idea was the dj could check it the you know if it was a radio play copy you could check the tracks you liked oh okay. uh, that's cool yeah but these are probably things you didn't you didn't figure out and hardly anyone has <laughs> <laughs> hey that's but part of the reason why we do this hung together yeah yeah <laughs> Okay, the Playboy Channel, two of the more famous names on the record. Yeah. Uh, you've got Mark Mothersborough and Jello Biafra. Yes, that's right. At that point, I think we... I probably met Jello Biafra and given him a copy of A Ten Eight Place and, and, and just had some slight connection with him. And Rand Weatherwax, who I mentioned earlier, who did played the sample, played by hand the, the, the percussion on uh, As Quiet Please... Rand Weatherwax was now working with Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead on the, revi the, the revived ver new version of the Twilight Zone mm. TV series. Okay. And, and we just thought it would be really funny to, unbeknownst to each group, to get a member of the Dead Kennedys and a member of the Grateful Dead on the same record album. Right. 
<laughs> and so that was really the whole, that was the whole, I, that was the whole inspiration there. Okay. And so Rand was working with Mickey Hart and Jerry Garcia. And yeah, and that's, of course, that track is later, but that's right. how we ended up with that connection. So oh, yeah, it okay. really is them on our record. We weren't sampling from something. It's stuff that they made that they, we went over, well, I'll get to, but yeah, I can get to that later. But we we went over to the Grateful Dead's uh, rehearsal studios in the in uh, Marin County and and got the recordings there. Okay. So we ended up uh, becoming friends with the Search of the Subgenius, and we were in Los Angeles to help out. We did live sound mixing and adding sound effects and noise and music to these Subgenius performances in Los Angeles. And Mark Mark from Devo was a was a big Subgenius supporter, and in fact. Uh, that night, th those two nights when Bob was assassinated, both nights, Bob Dobbs, mm -hmm. uh, the, the man under the mask of the Bob Dog mask was Mark from Diva. Um, uh, okay. Uh, you 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 heard it here first. Maybe I'm not <laughs> maybe I'm not supposed to reveal that, and I'm going to get a dart into the neck. But um, <laughs> well, explain that. Explain the whole story. We were we were definitely fans of Devo and thought it would be fun to get someone on the record and because we knew uh, we knew that uh, Ivan Stang of the Church of the Subgenius and we knew they were very tight with uh, with Devo and I think by that point they put out Freedom of Choice maybe New Traditionalists had also come out by then I think it had which yeah my two favorite Devo albums for sure are the first one and New Traditionalists mm -hmm. those are both standouts by far for, for sure. me yeah but. Um, and the first one, really, even just because it's the noisiest and most just gritty and just fucked up sounding one, they yeah they get so clean as the years go by. For sure, yeah. They clean. They just they got too good at what they were doing. The rough <laughs> edge. Yeah. So because Mark was at the Subgenius events, we just through through Ivan Stang, we just kind of connected with him, and and we ended up going over to his house in Beverly Hills, and he had a Fairlight synthesizer which again is like you know a hundred thousand dollar keyboard and he had uh he he composed that piece for us why we were just sitting there hanging out with him and all of the sounds are he while they were working on their albums they snuck into the vaults at warner brothers and pulled out of some old Jimi hendrix multi-track tapes so these aren't the mixed stereo recordings you would hear on the vinyl or cd right these are the raw multi-track tapes that you would use to mix down to the finished record and and they surreptitiously copied these act so that piece is actually made of samples of Jimi hendrix taken from one of his albums and mark pieced together um and that so that voice you hear in there that goes ooh, that low voice in there that's actually Jimi hendrix and i oh. think that's why we obliquely refer to it in the credits because it says uh mark brothers bow yeah, we, we credit him to playing Jim, jazz bass, Jimi Hendrix, E-Cushion. Yeah, he's playing Jimi Hendrix, essentially. Okay. And so the music was, uh, he, he composed the music. We then took what he composed and we spliced it up and reordered it and just sort of, yeah, restructured it quite a bit. And uh, David then did his, you know, vocal bit over the top talking about, he's essentially describing what he does, was doing for a living. Right. Yeah, you know, that's basically his job. Jello Biafra also did provide us with some noises of, um, he actually did some stuff where he had put a nail file on a guitar, which was great, but we just never found a place for it. Okay. So somewhere I think we still have that, you know, that recording still exists somewhere. He ended up just having a nice toilet flushing on there. <laughs> okay. 
just to get us through the record here, I'm going to skip around a little bit. Oh, yeah, sure. However you want to do it. Uh, Nesbitt's Lime Soda song. is. I'm sure. assuming that's just the group performing that song? Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. What exactly is Nesbitt's Lime Soda? Well, haven't you heard of Nesbitt's Soda? No. Well, go look it up, man. Do your research. <laughs> okay. I have a bottle of Nesbitt's Orange Soda right here with me right now. <laughs> um, good luck finding lime. You may, it may be challenging. But okay. yeah, Nesbitt's is a brand of soda. The whole song is a, an ode to all kinds of different brands of so, different kinds of sodas. That's actually that music was written in probably before the first Negative Land record was even made that existed, but in an earlier form. It was different and it didn't have as many lyrics and it kind of changed over the years. And then we ended up making uh, that recorded version for this album. And at the very end, when you hear uh, a sort of a, a found Occasionally, we make these fake uh, found recordings. They're not, you know, we want them to sound like a found recording, but they're not. So that's, in the end, that's actually me, actually screaming uh, and yelling. And I think I had some music on by the cars playing in the background really loud. I was just trying to make it sound like you were out, you were just somewhere, maybe in someone's house, was there some domestic abuse going on, just some awful, right. you know, is happening. And it's not someone who ever would want to be recorded. And that we stuck that in the track. I should also add that the opening uh, of the whole album, which you did not ask about, the announcement track, right? You know, special designer song follows in five, four, three, two, one. That is also a voice talent we hired to come in and read that. That's uh-huh. something that we wrote, and that's supposed to sound like something we found, but it's actually I assumed it was. To be honest with you, that's why I didn't ask about it. <laughs> a lot of people do, but yeah. if you listen to it more carefully, I, it's it's so absurd that how could it be? That's been sampled. We've heard that sampled on the MTV Music Video Awards show. Wow. Uh, that was sampled by Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch on an, a record of his that sold a million copies called Music for the People. Uh, that showed up. That's been sampled by a bunch of people over the years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Speaking so, of screaming, is that you also screaming on the song Car Bomb? Oh, no. That is the, <laughs> that is, that's Don Joyce uh, screaming. <laughs> and Don blew his voice it was so intense the way he did that we, we could only record one verse a day oh that's yeah. it yeah so we had to i remember we created like a circle on the floor of where he had to stand each time we let them we let we kept the mic set up and everything the same and uh he screamed that out of the top of his lungs yes okay so and and then the bomb parts came from all sorts of synthesizer sounds, but we actually, Don recorded the sound of a dump truck dumping out a whole truckload of parking meter, parking meter heads on the ground. <laughs> and we threw hubcaps off of a three-story building and we're recording the sound of, the, of garbage, uh, I mean, of car parts hitting the ground and rolling, you know, sometimes you hear uh, they're rolling around. And I've heard those explosions have been sampled on, I think there was some heavy metal radio station in uh, in San Diego that used the explosion sounds. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a kind of a conspiratorial right-wing talk show that actually uses uh, uh, Christianity is Stupid as part of his theme music. Oh, really? Yes, which is, which is uh, pretty interesting. Well, since you jumped ahead to that one, let's talk about that track. It's probably the most famous track off the album. Yes. Or probably your one of your best known tracks yeah, overall, it, I would say. Yeah. Well, in fact, I was just looking at the. You know, we we ha- we of course after what happened with the U two single, we went back to running around label, 
our distributor these days is the wonderful Revolver uh, Records in San Francisco. And of course, they now keep track of, they don't just do physical sales, but they also keep track of your, you know, your streaming and say, and your digital downloads and all that. So I get these reports at the, every month, you know, we all get them that says, uh, how many physical records and CDs you've sold, but also how many streams you've got. Right. And yeah, so, and to the, I would, the, the, the albums of ours that now stream the most are Escape from Noise is number one, then just Pepsi, and then I think True, True False, actually, is, is our mm-hmm. most recent one is, is up there, which is well, really... great to hear. It is great, it is great, yeah. and for us it's great. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, but the track that gets the most streams of, en- of any track ever is the one we are now discussing. Right. So yep. let, let's talk about this one. I mean, you've told the story in, a lot of, sure in, in print a lot of places about... <laughs> Uh, the fallout, I guess, if I can use that word. Um, sure. Let's talk about the track itself, though. How was it? Sure. How was it put together? That's fun. You know, it's interesting because I've been thinking for a while about doing almost writing down, a lot of the stuff that I'm describing. I've always thought since this is our most, our most sort of successful. This is the record that penetrated the market. You right. know, most successfully, it was <laughs> right. the most successful formula. That you know, it could be of interest to people to actually d- do a deep dive into every track and what every sample, everything we can remember about everything. Right. And so, um, yeah. So I can, yeah, I can tell you, it's. Um, let's see. Obviously, the the inspiration for the whole track is that Richard found that record album by the Reverend Estes W. Perkle, "If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do?" And that on that record, you know, was this preacher, which we. We heard saying Christianity is stupid, communism is good, give up. You know, the loudspeaker spoke up and said, 17, 17 hours a day, you know, give up. <laughs> you give must up, have been thrilled when you heard that. <laughs> well, it just sounded like this guy's the vocalist of a song. And back then, the idea of taking someone out of their original context and reusing it in a new way was felt like a very interesting new thing to do. It also felt pretty transgressive. You know, this is not what this person wants you to do with their voice. And we're recontextualizing it and repurposing it in a whole new way. And, you know, that tech, that approach, that kind of art practice is what was, you know, totally inspiring us as we made Escape from Noise. It took a while. I, I, I wish if Richard was still alive, I know he would have a lot more to say. But my, I think what happened was I think it just kind of sat there for a while before it may have been. Richard may have reminded us of, you know, you really should listen to that again. That thing's got potential. And then probably, I think maybe Dawn then kind of honed in on on those phrases. And we all realized that there was something really, really uh, interesting here. And then we decided that it would be really great if, it, if he was set to something really heavy, you know? Right. Um, and so that's the music. It, well, no, I'm sorry, I'll backtrack. The, the rhythmical loop is actually, it's a tape loop. Again, it's a real tape loop. It's tape. It's not a sample. It's a, it's a tape loop mm-hmm. cut from a um, Bill Nelson, who was in Bebop Deluxe. He, he put out a record called Flaming, uh, is it called, or it was an EP, Flaming Desire. And I think on the B side, there's a track that has the very beginning of that, and we slowed it down. Okay. And that became the, uh, the, the musical background, and then the basic uh, guitar riff, melody, chord pattern was actually improvised to tape, and that is a Gibson Les Paul copy played through an electroharmonics big muff, 
and then the synthesizer and kind of bass sounds is a CZ-101, and then the kind of timpani percussion sounds, actually a, it was an em, a, a drum pad, I think, made by Emu. It was just a drum pad that had sort of samples. So actually, yeah, there were samples. I have to take that back. So that was Don playing the percussion in there, and then we just very slowly and methodically laid in uh, the, the voice tapes, you know, over it. Right. To, of the of Reverend Perkle to be the vocalist. Right. Did I cover all of it? Yeah. 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 I think so. The actual making of that track, and uh, little did we realize that the, the longevity that one would have. <laughs> right. Because apparently people still think Christianity is stupid. <laughs> what do you know? All right. You've mentioned playing live a few times. Yes. Did you play live a lot leading up to this and afterwards? Oh, well, sort of, I guess the, the answer is we started playing live immediately after the first record came out. It was not our intention to do so, but a club in San Francisco in, the, in North Beach called the Savoy Tivoli somehow got our phone number and just called us and said, I think they assumed because we had a record album out, it meant that we were, quote, a band and that we played shows. Right, <laughs> you know? right. Well, we weren't a band, and I still don't think we are, really, but... We're just, we just made this thing in our bedrooms, and then they contacted us. We had no idea how we could make our rec, do our records on stage. It, it was not possible. So from the very first performance we ever did, which I think happened, I think that summer from the, after the record came out, we just started creating things to be played only on stage. And that's kind of, with some exceptions, an enormous amount of what we've done over the years is that the live shows were created just for live performance. Right. Or if we did version, if we did things from records, they were, they were quite different or radically different from the record album versions because we just pay, we, we've never been interested in just trying to duplicate them. It's just boring to us. And we like the idea of treating, uh, maybe tracks that fans love, but we treat them with no respect. Right. Know? <laughs> that's That's the correct uh, approach. Your your own work should just be you know more fodder for you to appropriate from, and reuse. And so we didn't. We weren't touring or anything. You know we that that what happened in the wake of Christianity Stupid all was all connected to us trying to do our first ever tour. So all we did is we played the barrier maybe once every six months. So each time we played, we would rehearse and rehearse to come up with a brand new show, and we would then only do it one time. And then six months later, we do another brand new show only once. Okay. Not necessarily the best use of your time and energy, <laughs> but that's all we knew. We didn't know how to book tours or go anywhere, and we had jobs, too. Right, you couldn't just right. couldn't leave and just go do this stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, a lot of those shows are recorded, and, and those are that's another bit of our archives that ought, probably ought to be shared because each one of those shows was com a complete from scratch different show and and some pretty interesting things happened like the time brought it the time david brought a live toad on stage and did a toad demonstration where the toad <laughs> ended up starting to mate with his arm while we were performing and it did toad you all over his arm <laughs> that was the highlight i want to ask about the artwork for the original lp because it's pretty amazing the liner notes are very pretty insane Crossley Bendix, that's Don Joyce. Yeah. yeah, when you say the original, you mean for Escape from Noise. Yes, the LP, yeah. Sure, gotcha. The image on the cover is based on a Polaroid photograph of my great uncle. 
It was taken in probably 1968. The car he's standing next to, I inherited after he died. Okay. And if you look carefully, especially at the CD version where it's a little bit higher resolution, if you think about the ending of A Big Ten Eight Place, do you know that record very well? Yeah. Okay, where are you when that record ends? You're back where you started, I believe. Well, but where do you go at the very, very end of that album? Oh, I listened to it today, actually, and I can't remember. You go down into the sewers. Right, right, yep. Okay, so look at the cover of Escape from Noise, turn it upside down, Where and you've driven back there in your car, backwards, at the end of a Big Ten A place. So look at where this is. You drove back to San Francisco, at the end of Big Ten A place. I've never met anyone who's figured this out. The cover of Escape from Noise is in, is the last moment of a Big Ten A place. Hmm. Yeah, so does that make sense? So you're starting the... You're starting a new journey, maybe. Yes. So that's the car. You're in. Obviously, that's the Golden Gate Bridge. You're in San Francisco, and there's the sewer, the the, the lid in the lower left corner. At least if you're turning it upside down. If you have it up, if you have the record right set up, it's upper right. Right. We thought it was more interesting to turn it upside down, and then Don, I believe, had the idea that we should actually not use the photo, but do it as a pencil drawing. And Don started it, and Peter Montgomery finished it. And I think Francesca did all the typography. I think, yeah, probably Don had the idea of putting the name Negative Land upside, you know, the, the picture's upside down, but the lettering is right side up. Hmm. Um, so that's, yeah. yes, that's the cover. That's the front cover. And then the back cover is uh, a bunch of different things that we found. And I think that those, the radio, the towers there, the radio towers are uh, behind the, the outline of, of the Soviet Union and the and the cross and the sickle, are uh, I think hand drawn. I think I think Don hand drew those. So anyway, but the artworks, like you know most things we do, it was very collaborative. Yeah, the whole thing with <laughs> all the sounds, the artwork, it's just an an amazing kind of explosion of art. <laughs> it's really something. And really, it's it's just to be honest with you talking to you about it is is just overwhelming because <laughs> there's just i feel like we could talk for four hours and not even scratch the surface <laughs> yeah well it's fun to talk about i don't know how interesting it will be for people to listen to all this but oh, people it's... will love it people will okay. eat this up for sure <laughs> okay it's i think you know if i don't know i guess if i was a if I was a super fan of, of, of a particular group's old record album, I, I might like hearing some of the weird little hidden details that no one's heard before. So, yes, we came up with this idea of the liner notes. I, as I said, it was supposed to be a, like it was a promotional record and it kind of literally frames the artwork. And, of course, Crosley Bendix is, you know, an alter ego for Don Joyce. Right. And. And the thing is, we actually were, when we were working on this record, we really were living in El Cerrito. And we were living near the El Cerrito Plaza, which is mentioned on the cover. Okay. So this is the record where we decide to reuse the little house image from a big 10-8 place and, and start using it as a little logo for Negative Land. Ah, okay. This is the first time, the house appears first on a big 10-8 place, but Escape from Noise is where we decide... That's kind of a cool image, and somehow it seems to fit what we're doing in some intuitive way that we can't explain, but it does, and we all agreed, and that's where it appears on the uh, record album. Well, of course, the record also came with that, the brochure that was also like a promotional pamphlet for the group, too, right. and that was part of that promo idea, and then at some point, when Carbomb 
you know, came together as a track. The idea came up, and I don't know who thought of this, but th- th- it would be really kind of funny to have a bumper sticker for your car that just said car bomb on it. <laughs> I'm not sure if anyone would want to use that now, but <laughs> okay. we do still sell them on our website. <laughs> you get your own if you're brave enough to wear that and your Christianity is Stupid t-shirt. Okay, well, since you mention it, yeah. Like I said, we could talk about, I'm, I feel like we could talk about this forever, but I do want to talk a bit about what you're doing now. You mentioned your website. So what's the website? Oh, just negativeland.com. And, I, and negative land is spelled with no, the second E at the end of negative is not there. Right. Uh, though I think if you spell it wrong, you'd still find it. Somehow, after all these years, we keep finding what we're doing to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of remarkable that it turns out that appropriating and collage as we as we well, I, what else I could say about Escape from Noise is that it's a, it's a, a big 10 place is the record where we start to really realize that you can use collage. It's not just interesting. You know, we're interested, obviously, in just the noises and the sounds. Right. We just we just love putting funny noises together. That's part of it. And there's a very uh, hopefully a, a, a kind of a childlike sense of play. That's that's one aspect of our work. But the other part of it is that by the time we're making a Big Tenny Place, we realize that you can use collage as a way to talk about the world we live in, you know, and, and in a way that feels paradoxically more authentic and honest because you're using actual stuff from the world you're in to talk about the world you're in, you know. Right. You're not writing song lyrics. You're using chunks of the of of it of the thing, right. the stuff, the detritus, the media, all the the media barrage, and. And Escape from Noise is where we really start to kind of dig more into that. Like, this becomes very interesting. And then when they really, really, we go into a real deep dive is with Helter Stupid, which comes out in 89. And, and then, then, and that's where Don starts to really, his, his, Don's very much a part of Escape from Noise, but, but Helter Stupid is where he just absolutely takes flight and just starts to take things to this whole other level of complexity in the work we're doing and we just see there's a whole even deeper level you can go with what you can do with collaging found voices and found sounds and along with original music and all that mixed together yeah so somehow we're still doing it we've had all these people die it's been bizarre and crazy but the work was still calling to us to do and also as i I think i you know as i think i mentioned earlier you know we had this enormous bunch of elements that had never been released that needed to get felt like this needs to get out there and and we, we're gonna we got to put it all together and obviously we're living in incredibly insanely weird dark times yeah of course recently the energy that's been coming forth in the wake of what happened with uh, uh, the death of george floyd yeah. is amazing and inspirational and i think it's 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 chaotic and 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 there's a lot of messiness, but I think it's beautiful and it absolutely needs to happen. And it's I'm, you know, very pleased. Very, it's amazing. It's incredible to be uh, living, being alive on a planet that can bring us, you know, that along with the guy who's currently running our country, whose name I don't even want to mention. <laughs> the world <laughs> needs negative land, Mark. I don't know, but it for <laughs> us, it, it was more like well, we needed it for our own. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. yeah, you don't, you don't ever. We don't do this thing because we think we're gonna. We don't do what we do because we think we're gonna change someone's mind. Right. Right. You did. That would be a not a good place to be coming from. But 
if it kind of encourages certain ways of thinking and seeing and suggest things, and maybe it does have an impact, maybe that would be wonderful. But you don't you don't sit around plotting it that way because I think the work would be very contrived if we did it that way. You always want it to come from an organic place that comes from who you are and what you care about. And I can also see that the way negative lens work for you know for anyone who's listening who's followed all of our work, and you can see how it starts to become more and more political. It also gets more and more goofy and, you know, there's multiple threads going on at once, but it definitely gets more and more uh, political. And that's just because we just as human beings got older and just became more aware of the way and ways the world is messed up. And, and, and there, there, there's a lot of things that trouble us and we just want, that's going to incorporate into our work. And we're not really going to do love songs because there's a bazillion of them already out there. The world doesn't really need any more. Well, True False was a great record. Thank Happy you. to hear there's another one in the can. Can't wait to hear it. Yeah, yeah. we wouldn't put it out. I'm telling you, know, we, we're still, a lot of times, our, our release is going to be far apart. And, and I don't know what the future holds. I always want to be ready to just to realize it's we're done and we need to pull the plug. I don't, I don't ever want to see us do something where we really just you know, lost the plot and, and, uh, we should only put something out if we think we've got something worth contributing to the conversation yeah. out there. Otherwise we need to just be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly right now with a lot of what's happening in the world, this is a time for lots of white people in the West to be quiet and listen. For sure it is. Yes. <laughs> really is. It really, really is. Yeah. And that's, and, uh, and then, Take it in and then do what you can to support what's going on in you know, whatever way you can. Yeah, yeah. very important. Very well important. said. Mark, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. What can you say? Thanks so much, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, it was great having Mark on. Thanks for being on, Mark. Uh, so much great stuff. Like I said, I feel like we just scratched the surface of this record. Oh, yeah. He was really... I think he was pretty impressed that uh, you were you were asking the questions you asked too, and he definitely gave you a hard time for some of the questions that you didn't already know the answer to, which I thought was <laughs> I thought that was good. <laughs> okay, here's a little spiel I have. Negative Land formed in 1980 in the Contra Costa County in San Francisco Bay Area. They're an experimental multimedia group, primarily using appropriated sounds images, objects, and text. Now here's the bio from their website. Mixing original materials and original music with things taken from corporately owned mass culture and the world around them, Negative Land surreally rearranged these found bits and pieces to make them say and suggest things that they never intended to. In doing this kind of cultural archaeology and culture jamming, a term they coined way back in 1984, Negative Land have been sued twice for copyright infringement. While it is true that after being sued, Negative Land became more publicly involved in advocating significant reforms of our nation's copyright laws, Negative Land are artists first and activists second. All of their art and media interventions have intended to pose both serious and silly questions about the nature of sound, media control, ownership, propaganda, power, and perception in the United States of America. Their work is now referenced and taught in many college courses in the U.S. 
has been written about and cited in over 150 books and legal journals, and they sometimes lecture about their work here and in Europe. And in Winnipeg, by the way. Mark was telling me about how he did a lecture in Winnipeg. Oh, cool. So here's a little bit about the members of the, the, the group on this release. And uh, I think we did a fairly good job in the interview of, you know, telling the story about who came along when in the, uh, in the negative land story. But we've got Mark Hosler uh, from Concord, California. David Wills, a.k.a. The Weatherman. Uh, he apparently retired from the group sometime in the 90s. I'm not sure what his status is right now. I think he's on true-false, but I'm not sure if it's, you know, current stuff or if they just use older material. He's apparently quite reclusive, so... Uh, Richard Lyons. Several alter egos in Negative Land World, including Preacher Pastor Dick, uh, washed-up radio personality Dick Vaughn, and used car salesman Dick Goodbody. He passed away on his 57th birthday, April 19th, 2016. Don Joyce, born in Keene, New Hampshire. He earned a master's degree in painting from the Rhode Island School of Design before moving to the Bay Area. He started the sound collage radio program Over the Edge in 1981. He coined the phrase culture jamming in 1984. He's also known by his alter ego Crosley Bendix. He passed away July 22nd, 2015 at age 71. And when he passed away, the group released an album called The, the Chopping Channel, which was the ninth volume of albums containing edited portions taken from Over the Edge. And the first 1,000 copies came with two grams of his cremated remains. Ian Allen introduced the rest of the group to Don Joyce, played a major role in their album The Big 10-8 Place, which is kind of a precursor to this album. He passed away at age 56 on January 17th, 2015. And Chris Gregg joined up around the A Big 10 Place era. I think he's primarily a guitarist and synth player, and we'll be seeing him again on future Negative Land releases, and also on SST-159, the Steve Fisk 448 Deathless Days album. Right. They released a self-titled album in 1980 on their own label, Sealand. The name of the label and the name of the band, Negative Land, are both taken from 1972's Neu album, the German Krautrock band formed by a couple of uh, members of Kraftwerk, who splintered from the group. They eventually released 15,000 copies on vinyl and CD of that album, of the self-titled album, all with one-of-a-kind covers. In 1981, they released Points. In 1983, a big 10-8 place, which is a concept album and kind of their breakthrough release. Um... Then in 84, they released a cassette-only album called JamCon 84, and we'll be seeing a reissue of that as SST-233. It's the first volume of the Over the Edge series, and also they self-released a cassette in 1985 called The Starting Line, which is Over the Edge volume one and a half, and that's partially reissued on SST-233 as well. I've mentioned this before, Ryan, but there's a book called 33 and a Third B-Sides. Right. It's writers who have written uh, other books in the 33 and a Third series, writing other shorter 
blurbs about albums. And Kim Brew McLeod wrote one about this album. So I, I took a bit of stuff out of there. In titling their 1987 album Escape from Noise, they were referring to the ubiquitous pop culture cacophony that blankets us all. But instead of literally escaping, living off of the technological grid, the group engaged with this brave new world by injecting subversion into the mix. I also found some stuff from this article in Option Magazine. Interview an article by this guy, Rory Lyons. This is from uh, 1987. The seed idea of escape is about the noise pollution we deal with in daily life. But it's not the point. The record's not preaching. There's not a singular message to it. I think he says in the interview, you're using stuff from the world you're in to talk about the world you're in. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing we didn't talk about in the interview. And some of this is from that Option Magazine article. They had decided around 1983 to move in together to build a studio in their living room where they worked on this album. Friday, February 13th, 1987, they're sitting in their apartment watching Swamp Thing and something ignited in the dry cleaners business below them. And uh, it started a fire. And it ended up burning their the dry cleaners down and their apartment too. They escaped just in time. They grabbed the master tapes for this album the cat, and some of the more expensive equipment, but much of their belongings were lost, including Don's extensive tape collection of found noises. And uh, the original LP of this has extensive liner notes. Don Joyce, as Crosley Bendix in the liner notes, talks about the fire. He says, The psychic toll is still being collected. I am sad to report that like frightened turtles on, on some scary island, the traumatized members of Negative Land have pulled in their heads, their hands, and their feet to rock helplessly on mottled shells of indifference cast away on a black beach of burning despair. Yikes. Yeah, the I only have the CD version, and it says you have to send $2 to cover postage to get the 20-page booklet and a sticker way back then. Hmm. Yeah, it says recorded at our... It says on the LP, recorded at our home, R-I-P-I-H-S, that would be their studio, and other people's homes, 1983 through 1987. Thanks to Crosley and everyone who helped us out after the fire. Okay, here's a few other things. Uh, There's the Christianity is stupid controversy. So in order to explain a canceled tour after this album came out, they issued a press release stating the song Christianity had is stupid, had played a role in the David Brom murders. And if you don't know what those are, in 1988, he killed his parents, brother, and sister with an axe near Rochester after he got in an argument with his father over the music he was listening to. The press release that Negative Land put out implied he'd been listening to this song, Christianity is Stupid, before the fatal quarrel. They claimed, they claimed the band had been advised by federal official Dick Jordan not to leave town pending investigation. They, they like using the word, the name Dick, I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> Here's Mark in that 33 and a third book. What really made the story work and what gave it legs was that it was tied into the fears about back masking and hidden messages in rock music at the time. 
a bunch of media outlets ran the story. They started getting calls about it, so they start saying the FBI asked them not to discuss the case. And much of the news coverage from this hoax was used on SST 252, Helter Stupid. So we'll be hearing more about, uh, about this. Here's Andrew Earls Ryan in the Gimme Indie Rock book. After initiating a hit-or-miss run of releases on which one can hear Negative Land honing its craft, one of the band's primary angles of attack came to fruition on its fourth full-length, Pranks as Art Form and Humor. This album was also Negative Land's most music-based outing up to this point, featuring rearranged audio content plus real music made by the band or like-minded friends and guests. Do you want to do the tracks, Ryan? Yeah, man. History Lesson, Part 2. Okay, so this was released on LP by SST and Sealand. I think it's listed as Sealand 006. And it was also released on CD and cassette. And it's been released many more times, including by the band. It's not currently on their website, though, which is, which is too, too bad. But you can hear it on Spotify and, and buy it online. It is the easiest one to come across. Like it's the one that over the years in the bins at the record stores, this is the one that you see there. It's the most common one for sure, right? Like I I think you could say it's like their classic album. Oh, for sure it is. It's their most well-known album, I'd say. Yeah. Okay, it starts out with an announcement. And I <laughs> I was glad to hear that this was actually created by the band. It's such a cool intro to an album. I'm I'm assuming the person voicing this might be Ed Markham, who's listed as a paid voice on the LP. It seems right. This cut has been analytically designed to break on radio, and it will. <laughs> okay, and then we get into the album, track one, Quiet Please. And I like how he explained how the tracks have the little squares beside them, so you radio programmers yep. can check off the ones they they like that's yep. cool play these ones yep. well they start on the back with the phrase you know suggested cuts right yeah okay quiet please this is the one he talks about in the interview with the Negan, nina hagen tape loop with cartoon sounds over top of it yeah and they're saying is there any escape from noise did you pick out the sample of the the classic cartoon that you and I probably both watched when we were kids. The Looney Tunes? Mr. Magoo. Oh, Mr. Magoo. No, no, no. I didn't. I thought maybe I thought maybe some of the actual sounds were from Looney Tunes. They sounded like that. There's a Grinch sample on the record too. Maybe I thought you were mentioning, but it's not on this track. Yeah, no, Mr. Magoo's on this one. This is the one also you can hear Henry Kaiser doing his thing over top of it. Uh, a guy named Doss, or a woman, I guess, member of Big City Orchestra, a Bay Area experimental music ensemble, listed as Voice Tapes. Rand Weatherwax, who we didn't really get into too much in the interview. I should have asked more about Rand Weather, Weatherwax. His IM, or her, IMDB says uh, they worked as a sound designer on many shows, including the 80s version of The Twilight Zone, which Mark mentions in the interview. Didn't we have someone on the show who did who did the sound for? It was like a mystery TV show. Who was that again? Hmm. Was that Henry Kaiser? Yes, it was. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. What was it? Amazing Mysteries or something? <laughs> oh, what was it called? I can't remember, but yeah, that's what he did with his Synclavier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Synclavier, well, this... sorry. Synclavier. Yeah. yeah, well, Rand plays E. Cushion. I love that. Yeah. Okay, then we go into the track, Michael Jackson. Uh, starts with someone saying, someone asking, what are you going to do? And I think it's David Wills going, I'm going to record all the noise, like doing a field recording. Sounds like maybe in a diner or something like that. Yeah. And then, and then I'm pretty sure Mark says in the interview that this is a woman, like preacher saying this, but it sounds like a man. Van Halen, Tina Turner, David Bowie, <laughs> Cindy Looper, Weird Al Yankovic. And these are apparently like, records to avoid or something oh yeah this one's got the one-two punch of fred frith and steve fisk on optagon keyboards and voice tapes steve fisk then we've got the title track escape from noise this is the one with mark on vocals going rock music blares door slam and then we've got david wills with the playboy channel talking about a noise <laughs> ruining your orgasm so on the playboy channel on the playboy channel sounds like a story from his time as like a tv repair person hey yeah you get the treat in this song of hearing jello biafra flush his toilet and mark mothersbaugh uh playing jazz bass Jimi hendrix sounds which i couldn't pick out i listened to it very intently trying to hear the Jimi hendrix sample or or whatever you want to call it and i couldn't Mark's also doing some E cushion and some saxophone too. Do you think that um, Jello's toilet that he flushes is the same one as on the I Blow Minds for a Living album cover? <laughs> it probably is, right? I hope so, yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds like it looks. Yeah. <laughs> Good one. Track five Stress in Marriage. More, uh, is there any escape from noise? Uh, there's a sample about how there's enough built-in stress in marriage without noise contributing to the stress. <laughs> definite, th definite theme about noise on this record and escaping yeah, for it. Sure. For sure. Okay, then this I'm assuming is what you're referencing when you say that I did, <laughs> didn't know. I don't know. Do we have Nesbitt's Lime Soda? or In Canada? In Canada. Mm, not in like central Canada. It seems like something that is probably, you know, U.S. only like payday candy bars or Lucky Strike cigarettes. We don't have know? any good stuff here. Oh, that's not true. But anyways, we definitely don't have Nesbitt's Lime Soda. Um, yeah, he definitely took the piss out of you and that was hilarious. <laughs> well, he says good luck finding it, I think, or something like that in the interview. I don't think... They probably discontinued the flavor. I don't think they ever made lime flavor, as far as I can tell. Uh oh, it's a great song, though, right? Yeah, written and sung by Richard Lyons about a man who lost his temper after a bee flew into his soda, and they had to throw it away. <laughs> don't throw away your soda, man. Get that bee out and keep on drinking. Yeah. Okay, then we go to Over the Hiccups, which it's listed on the LP. Louisa Michaels from One Step nursery school sings the sings this song here's from option magazine and this is something mark says in the interview 
a recording of one of Hosler's hiccup hiccuping students singing. By itself, it would just be cute. In the middle of everything else, it's a sad juxtaposition of innocence surrounded by a world of rampant capitalism, corruption, violence, and cold technology. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting how he made it sound like this was the key track to tie the album together. And I was like, what? But I guess like juxtaposition for sure. Like it does, it does break it up and it totally fits, but it's really out of place and totally fits. Yeah. It's really cute too. Okay. Track eight, Sycamore. This one has Ian Allen listed as helicopter sounds. This is, they're talking about like guns and suburbia sycamore i assume is like an ad for for a sounds like a newer gated community or something like that then we go into the last track on side one car bomb rhythm loop by ian bomb parts phil freinhofer and don screaming his head off <laughs> Which yeah. Mark, Mark talks in the interview about how they had to piece it together because he kept losing his voice. Okay, flip it over and we've got Methods of Torture. Torture Guitars by Tom Herman, who's a founding member of Perubu. Have you ever heard his band, uh, Tom Herman's band, Tripod Jimmy? No, I have not. You should check them out. You'll like them. I should, yeah. They sound like a... They sound like a cross between like Pill and the Big Boys or something like that. This one has samples about torturing people with, you know, sounds like putting their head into a ringing bell until they go insane. The guitar playing is is uh, the standout for me. It's really noisy and really cool. Then we go to track two, Yellow, Black, and Rectangular, or Irrectangular. <laughs> it sounds like Mr. Sulu or something. Did you, you know? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, here's from Option Magazine again. From about the time the punchline of yellow, black, and re rectangular unravels itself, the fear, paranoia, and finally anger that make life in the 80s so precarious are explored. And I think they're referencing like, they talk about a fallout shelter at the end of this track. Cold War. Yeah. Track three, Backstage Pass. Voice tape by Tara Friedman. And this is the one that has Mickey Hart of on processed animals. He provided Negative Land with recordings of insects and animals treated with various electronic effects that he specifically made for this album. And it's also got Jerry Garcia on mouth sounds and chimes. Okay. Then we get into kind of the, I don't know, the big hit, I guess. Definitely the most famous track. Yeah. Uh, Christianity is Stupid. Uh, Metal to Noises by uh, Alexander Hawk. He is, uh, he's from Einstritzen Neubotten. Uh, pretty cool that he plays, plays on this for sure. Reverend Ivan Stang on Larnix. Uh, Ivan co-founded the Church of the Subgenius in the 1970s. It's a parody religion with a complex philosophy that focuses on J.R. Bob D. 
Dobbs, purportedly a salesman from the 1950s who is revered as a prophet by the church. You've for sure seen the clip art photo of him smoking a pipe, and you can watch a video uh, live on stage of his assassination in 1984, which uh, Mark also references in the in the interview. Uh, this track uses audio from the 1971 Reverend Estes Perkle anti-communism film, If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? And I noticed at the end of this, there's a really timely sample, Ryan. It says, shop as usual and avoid panic buying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's insane how much music came out in the, uh, well, maybe more mid eighties, but you know, in the eighties in general, that right now is just really, really unfortunately relevant. Oh yeah, for sure. There's yeah. just so, so much stuff, man. Every dead Kennedy song is so relevant <laughs> right now. It's all coming true. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Then we go into the longest track at five and a half minutes, Time Zones. This one's got Ian Allen on bells. Here's from the 33 and a third book. The remixed sound bites capture the Cold War's pre-millennial anxiety and the possibility of nuclear annihilation, all without sounding heavy-handed. This sounds like it's from like a call-in radio show. Yeah, I agree. Okay, track six, You Don't Even Live Here. Uh, this one's got Rob Wartman of Big City Orchestra and also another Bay Area sound collage collective called King's House on Leaf Blower, and it's got The Residents on Hoots and Clanging, and Dinah Emerson on Wordless Vocals. Okay, here's from that Option Magazine article about this, this track, You Don't Even Live Here. The explosive You Don't Even Live Here features the protests of a Diablo Canyon resident, a concerned mother, fighting an invasive monster at a nuclear regulatory commission hearing set to a frantic tribal rhythm. It's very reminiscent of the material on Burn and Eno's My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. Oh, yeah. Although, as a statement, it is much more immediate. Here's Mark from that same, same article. I had problems deciding whether or not to use her. When I first heard that, it almost brought tears to my eyes. It's so impassioned. And I thought, if I put this to music, it's patronizing to her. But I finally decided I want people to hear this. I tried to remove specific references to what it was because I wanted it to be just this person who is just hysterically upset, yet really in control, and she is really trying to talk to them and tell them how she feels. Mm. Track 7, The Way of It. This one is pretty short. It's got some sounds we've already heard, like the keyboard pattern from the title track. And then it just ends with Endscape, some cheering, more singing from Richard, I believe, to end the album, uh, like Nesbitt style, and a little bit of irony too. Now he sings, now I'm leaving this suburban crowd and moving to LA to a big time record company that will pay and pay and pay. Didn't really work out that way, unfortunately. He says, Mark says in the interview, I loved experiencing works of art and film and music where you just wanted to dig into it over and over because there was just layers and layers to it. I think that's a pretty accurate description of 
of this album. Oh yeah. There you hear something every time, like something different each time. There's lots of layers. It it requires repeated lessons for sure. And the and the original packaging too is just insane. Let's talk about the art, Ryan. It's described in pretty great detail by Mark in the interview, at least the cover art is. Yeah, the image. Which is good because I wouldn't have picked out a lot of that. It says on the cover, a new album from Negative Land. It's made to look like a promo. And then there's a really great insert uh, by Crosley Bendix, or a lot of it is, the, the writing in it, which is Don Joyce. He's director of stylistic premonitions. It's kind of cut and paste style. There's an article about the fire in there. There's an article that appears to be from a school newspaper uh, called The Smoke Signal, and it's about the first Negative Land LP, and remember, Mark was still in high school, and he, he's quoted in the article as saying, now I can say I've done something in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, at the end of the article says, there will also be a record preview today at lunch in room 302. There's reviews of previous albums, like a Big Ten, 10-8 place. And it, it says in one of the reviews, Negative Land creates animation for the ear. Mm. I liked that. There's an interview with the band in there. There's a Sealand discography. They released other stuff on Sealand, not just Negative Land. Um, the whole thing looks a bit like a Winston Smith package from Alternative Tentacles. Actually, yeah. been thinking about alternative tentacles because Jello's on this. This would have made more sense to me to be on alternative tentacles. Yeah, for sure. The Winston Smith uh, connection there makes a ton of sense with because Negative Land is really working with collage in all sorts of different mediums, right? And yeah. that is totally a Jello Winston Smith type thing too. And all the pranks and the commentary on, you know, the media and everything is totally up jealous. And they're from the Bay Area. The Bay Area, for yeah. sure. I mean, it makes it makes total sense that they, they knew each other, I suppose. Very subversive, very political, very iconoclastic, and creative, too. Yeah. Uh, the packaging and the artwork, Frances Francesca Friedman... Uh, Negative Land and Peter Montgomery. Il illustrations by Don Joyce and Peter Montgomery. You referenced this earlier, and he talks about it in the interview too. The original LP came with a yellow bumper sticker with black letters just simply reading Car Bomb. Yeah. And, Ryan, there's Dead Wax on the LP. Side A, Break This Record. And side B1, a staggering success story. Huh. Can't help but think break this record is a pun intended. Yeah. That's it. That's negative land, man. Can't wait to get to more. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. I can't I can't help but think like you know, when I was listening to this in the interview in particular, and I mean I sure hope people have made it through the interview and made it, you know, through the whole show here because I mean, I don't know. I don't know what our demographic is. You know, I, I get the sense that our demographic is, you know, balding, but, <laughs> but, but hopefully it's not. 
just that. And I would love to, to find out one day that someone heard this interview with Mark and was inspired to do something themselves, you know, and, and dug into negative land and what they did and that this little, you know, not this little, but this collective of uh, creativity that was and it's just keep it's it's just going like it just keeps going and it sounds like too you know they were really good friends with each other too this great collective community of friends doing you know all this far out stuff man i love it yeah yeah and they're still doing it everyone should check out true false i know we mentioned it in our year-end recap but it's definitely worth checking out for sure and we're we've got a bunch of negative land still to come so that's going to be awesome oh yeah like five more right yeah at least are we ready for the ballot result ryan indeed we are ballot result what do you say uh i kind of feel like it's not my favorite song my favorite song is probably nesbitt's lime soda but probably christianity is stupid is is got to be the ballot result for my money christianity is stupid gotta be right yeah i like it yep yep all right done deal hey thanks again to mark for being on the show definitely definitely just fascinating yeah man speaking of fascinating what's next week ryan Ooh, this is a big one brant it's the sonic youth album sister sst 134 and we've got a special guest yeah steve shelley's going to be on the show Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.